why is the love of God a mystery? Why is the love of God for me such a mystery? It's because I didn't deserve it. (laughs) It's amazing. Philip sent me a text several days ago asking me, you know, if I had any specific songs um, that I, you know, that I had thought of that go along with my message, and I, I really didn't have any, so I, I said, you just play what God puts on your heart, basically, and um, that song um, is very fitting for the message today, so God, God knew where I didn't, as he always does. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. And as you turn, I will pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day. God, for allowing me to stand and proclaim your word. And God, I pray that I would correctly do so. That I would honor you and that I would give you glory and that I would become small and that you would be great in the eyes and ears of the people hearing today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would deliver this message. God, I pray, Lord, that it would help to stir up the souls. Your Spirit will bear witness with the souls of the people who belong to you that we may better serve you, that we may better understand this institution of marriage that you've given us, that we may look different in the world so that we can better proclaim you to this lost and dying world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, it's been on my heart for several weeks as I was finishing up the book of James, um, the institution of marriage. The, and I think a lot of it is everywhere I turn around, everywhere I look, there's somebody treating this institution wrong. They're entering into it wrong. They're leaving it wrong. And I thought, you know, we have a lot of people here. If you're in this room, you're probably either married, going to get married, or know somebody that's married. Right? I mean, it, it is the institution of marriage, even for single people, affects everybody. The, the, our country stands on the institution of marriage. Um, so it is extremely important from that sense, but I think there's more to it that we've lost in Christianity, and that's what I want to look at this morning. In, in Matthew chapter 19, we'll start at verse 3. Well, we'll just start at verse 1. He says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. In verse 3, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. There's a lot in this passage that I hope to get to and I hope to bring out. But that last verse is interesting to me. These are his disciples. And and apparently in history, there was a time, in this time, the the institution of marriage was, was slipping. It was failing. There was much debate over marriage and how it should be handled and divorce and whether it's important or not. And it's very, very similar to what we have going on in our country, in our culture, in the culture of the Western world in general right now. Um, The institution of marriage is not what it used to be. I think everybody would agree with that as far as what we see in the culture. The true institution of marriage hasn't changed. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but as we look at this, the disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If he can't put her out for whatever he wants to, he's better off not getting married. That's what they were saying. These are the disciples of Christ. These aren't the Pharisees that said that. This is the disciples. But they didn't understand Jesus's vision of marriage they saw what he was saying is so extreme that they would be better off not getting married and that's what we see today that's what we see in our culture um, in our culture now Uh, and like I said we it's just everywhere you turn around and and it's sometimes the marriage lasted six months and sometimes the marriage lasted 60 years and then all of a sudden these two people are splitting up and you're going... And, and it doesn't even seem like there's a fight for the, for the marriage. It doesn't, it's just kind of nonchalant. And if you really want to see a nonchalantness about it, you can get on the Internet and start looking at what the psychology world sees, what they say, and what the general public likes to comment on it. And so the institution is basically being disregarded. And when you start looking at statistics and polls, you'll see the same thing. You've heard some of the statistics. Roughly 45% of marriages in the United States end up in divorce. Almost half. So one in two, every, one out of two marriages fail it gets worse on the second marriage 60% of second marriages fail 
And then the third marriage, it's 72%. Now, most of these second and third marriages are not because of death. Most of the time it's because of divorce and remarriage, right? Well, what does that tell you? Does it tell you that, the, that it's because the institution is wrong? No. It shows that the view of marriage is wrong. So if you didn't have enough regard for it the first time, you're sure not going to have enough regard for it the second time, and it gets worse as it progresses. And there's an, in, and there's an, an obviously there's a push institutionally, culturally, governmentally um, against the institution of marriage. Today's wisdom, people that are wise today, they say that marriage is outdated. It's archaic. It's not any longer necessary. It's no longer a benefit to be married the way it used to be. Um, some of the top reasons that people give for not wanting to get married in the first place. It's not because they've been given the gift of singleness. It's not because they desire to be single. That's not the reason. I'm talking about people that don't want to be single, but don't want to be married. Kind of a have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. But some of the top reasons are most of the time they fail anyway, so what's the point? Well, that's a very good defeatist attitude you have there. Um, one of them was, most people prefer being happy and content today rather than to sacrifice themselves for the sake of a relationship. Wow. So, I'm selfish. That's why. Let's put it like it is and not sugarcoat it. Today's generation does not want to surrender their dreams in case their partner or relationship is holding them back which often happens in a marriage. Let me say that one again. Today's generation does not want to surrender their dreams in case their partner or relationship is holding them back, which often happens in a marriage. Another one is that my partner, my spouse, just doesn't make me happy anymore. Just not happy. The truth is, a lot of the reasons that used to be cited for reasons to get married may not be valid anymore. It used to be a big benefit on your taxes. You used to get a big, and I don't know if you still get the insurance break or not. And there's, There was a lot of things culturally that made marriage um, appealing to people. And some of those aren't true anymore. But the the real true reasons for marriage are still very much intact and very much alive. And, and here's the case. They didn't have the, the reason, the, the, as on surface level, it looks like the reasons for marriage are falling off is because people don't have the same vision for marriage that Jesus does. And obviously, we don't expect the world to have the same vision of marriage that Jesus does. But we do expect Christians to have that view. And the reality is, it's really not being taught. But Jesus told us that this would be the case, especially with unbelievers. In verse 11, he says, But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only 
those to whom it has been given. And so it's no surprise. We shouldn't be shocked, even though it is still sometimes shocking to me. It's no surprise that at a time when the culture where men and women worship themselves above all things, this is a self-worshipping culture we live in. This is a self-worshipping time that we live in. And in a time and a place where sexual relations are unbridled, perhaps higher than ever, Jesus' view of marriage is not only rejected, but it is detested by the world. But for you, if you're a Christian, if you are alive in Christ, if you've been born again, when he says this saying isn't to all those, but to those who it has been given, it has been given to you. And you can accept this saying. And so that's why we're here. That's what we want to talk about. Um, you've probably heard statistics like things like, well, the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate outside the church. I've heard those statistics. They're quoted a lot. Or sometimes it's even higher. Well, the, some people love to quote those statistics. The reality is the divorce rate among professing Christians is very similar to that among non-believers. But as you go, statistics are a funny thing. You can twist them to however you want to make them, right? Um, it all depends on what angle you're looking at. But as you go deeper into it, practicing Christians, the divorce rate drops by 20%. And that, that means they go to church on Sunday and they pray. Christians who are devoted to their church and serving in their church and reading their Bible daily the number starts to fall even more, the divorce rate. Why? Because they, the more you study God's Word, the more you understand the glory of God, who He is, who you are in relation, the more you start to see the same vision of marriage that Jesus had, the same vision of marriage that Paul wrote about, and it starts to change the way you look at the institution, and it changes everything. Isn't that what we're here for? Isn't that why, as Christians, isn't that our purpose, is to change the way we live in this world? We're not the same anymore. We're different. And in so doing, people notice, and we have an opportunity to point them to Christ, the same one who changed us, and then he changes them, and it goes, the cycle continues. That's what we're here for, and that's what happens in marriage. So why is it the same? Why is the divorce rate the same with professing Christians? Well, it goes back to what Paul has mentioned the last two times he's preached. Which is what? Christianity in America, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Right? There's no depth to what is being taught. There's no depth to what is being learned in your own homes, in your own study time. And so what we want to look at today, we want to try to get some more depth into this subject of marriage so that we can not be an inch deep. So let's look at the biblical view of marriage. Turn over to Genesis 2.18.
We know this about biblical marriage. The marriage was created by God. He's the one that created it. He's the one that instituted it. Verse 18 in chapter 2. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Let's skip down to verse 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. He saw every other creature that God had made, and there, he, he notices, there's not one like me. There's, I'm the only one like me. I'm the only one created in the image of God. And so verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and ch- closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the, God, the Lord God had taken... From man, he made it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You notice what Adam didn't say there when God brought him Eve? Well, I don't, I don't know, God. I gotta see if I, I gotta see if I gotta get to know her, see if I fall in love with her, see if we're romantically compatible. Well, he didn't have a lot of choices, right? But she became his wife, and he prophesied. He didn't even have a mother and father. That didn't exist yet. There was no mother, mother and father. That, but he prophesied. That this is how it's going to be from this point on. So as old as mankind is, is the institution of marriage. And he said that the father shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife. So God instituted it. The first two people. And we can see immediate purpose from from this perspective of what the purpose of uh, marriage is. And the number one purpose from this perspective from beginning, is companionship. God said it is not good for man to be alone. So he makes him a helper. A helper. Somebody to come alongside. I've heard it said, you know, he didn't take it out of the toe or out of the foot. He took it out of the side. And the two shall become one flesh. It is a union between a man and a woman so that they can help one another in all manners of life. That's the purpose from that point. But now, as we move into the New Testament, back in Matthew, it's the same in Mark. Jesus reveals this in a deeper way as we look at this. Um, We'll we'll back up to verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The Pharisees were a sly group of men, weren't they? They thought they were pretty slick. They thought they were going to trap God. They thought they were going to trap the Son of God, the Creator. Um, It didn't work out real good for them. I really enjoy reading these things just to see the reactions 
of that. But what, so what they were doing, they were testing him. Um, they're, they're testing his knowledge and understanding of the law, but even more so, what, what they were bringing out was there were two schools of thought on this subject. The Pharisees were divided on this particular issue. Some of them believed that a man could, could divorce his wife for only what they called uncleanness, which actually would come down to very serious issues, that, that that was the only way that they should be allowed to divorce. And some of them believed that a man could put his wife away and divorce her for basically any frivolous reasons. And most of the commentaries, when you read them, they would say things like they burnt, she burnt a meal. And he, or maybe he just got tired of her or whatever. And so you had this division. And so when they ask this question, they know that whatever answer he gives, he's going to make somebody mad. So that's, that's why they're trying to trap him. They're trying to corner him up. Their biggest concern with Christ was not his teaching as much, although it was his teaching, but it wasn't as much his teaching as his popularity. And it wasn't so much his popularity as that the jealousy and envy of him taking away from their popularity, right? So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get some people mad at him and putting him on this um, kind of the same way they did with the resurrection later on. So they ask him this question, and his answer is phenomenal, as you would expect. As with many times, Jesus quotes Scripture. So what is his answer? He quotes what we just read in Genesis. He says, but I love how he says it. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he just quotes what we just saw in Genesis. And as we look at that just in general, there's some interest, there's some Things that we we need to glean from that. Um, Number one, the man should leave his father and mother. And that would also imply that the woman should leave her father and mother. So they no longer, when, when this institution occurs, it's time to grow up. It's time to move on. You're no longer depending on your parents for sustenance, spiritual, physical, for a headship. They are no longer your parents. And, and as I know this, will, this time will come for me, it also means parents, you're to let them go. You're no longer their head. Ronnie's kind of smiling because I know that look, because he knows I'm going to have to deal with it. It's easy for me to say now. I know it's going to be hard, but that's what the Scripture says. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You're to leave your mother and father. There was a preacher um, several years ago. He told a story, and we were young in our marriage, and, and um, it, it was very impactful to me. He had just gotten married to his wife, and they got into it. I mean, I don't know how long they had been married. They were still probably within a year of marriage, so pretty much newlyweds. They got into a fight, and he got mad, you know, angry, left, and he went home. Went to his mom and dad's house, and his mom said, 
turn around, back out the door, and go home to your wife. And that was the exact right thing to do. But what do we see today? We see the fight happen, and they're going to happen. And somebody gets mad, and they go home, and they start telling how bad that guy is, or how bad that lady is. I can't believe she did this. And what do the parents do? Oh, come here. Come here. It's okay. I can't believe they treated my baby this way. No, that is sinful on all parts. The fight was sinful to start with. It's sinful to go back home. And then it's sinful for the parents to console that. You go home and you cleave to your wife. You go home and you cleave to your husband. Why? Because it's what Jesus said marriage is. And if you want to take the why out farther, if the Jesus said it that way isn't enough, it's also how you save your marriage. It's also how you make this last past 30, which is the average age of divorce. Because he said and he has the authority is enough, but also because he has the wisdom is enough. So you leave your mother and father and cleave to your wife, cleave to your husband, and they are to become together as one flesh. This is actually physical in the consummation of the marriage, but it's also spiritual and practical. This is not your marriage partner. This is not the, uh, this, this is your other half. For this division to break up, if, if this has really happened, if the marriage institution has happened, and if Jesus says it is, then that's true. Then when, you, when those two split up, it should be like losing half of your body. It should not be something that's frivolous. It should not be something that, yeah, I'm just not happy anymore. Well, you know, when I play the guitar... My fingers do not do what my mind tells them to do. Any other guitar players in here? Anybody know what I'm talking about? In my mind, they're doing this. And it's, and then, but in reality, I'm not happy with my fingers. Well, maybe I should just cut them off. That's what it is. Right? It is a union. Together we are one flesh. And then Jesus goes on. He takes it to another level. He goes past the quote and he adds in this. He brings in some more depth. If that's not deep enough, he brings in more. And he brings in more clarity to what marriage is at this point. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we've heard that a lot of times. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard that. I think the King James says, let not man set asunder. And we've heard, it's one of those things Paul was talking last week, or the last time he preached about, um, we, we hear things so many times, they just kind of become rhetorical or, or uh, nominal. We don't really think about what it means. And so what I want to do is I want to point this to what it means that statement right there shows us that God not only instituted marriage, but he is actually the one who joins the two people together in a one flesh union. 
It is God that does it. When those two people stand in front of God and they take a vow saying, till death do us part, what we don't realize and what this culture doesn't realize and what the 50% of people getting divorces don't realize is God is doing something spiritually, supernaturally, that is not to be set asunder. It is not to be divided. He's the one doing the work. And look at their response. The Pharisees, they're still trying to trap him. They're still trying to confuse him. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? This is what happens when you try to trap Jesus. He turns it right back because of the hardness of your hearts. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The institution of marriage that God made in the Garden of Eden was not meant to ever be separated. There was provisions made because we're so wretched. There there had to be provisions made. But God... Even during the law, even when those provisions made, even when Moses said there's certain things you can get a divorce, God hates divorce. Turn to Malachi. It's right to the left of Matthew. Malachi chapter 2. Starting in verse 13, he says, And this is the second Thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore. Nor receive it with goodwill from your hands, yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And you've dealt treacherously with her. God joined this together in the heavens and you're treating her like she's nominal, like she's dung. God joined this together in the heavens and you're treating Him like He's some piece of trash. You're dealing treacherously with one another. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the design of marriage by God. And we need to get over ourselves, turn to Christ, and repent of this evil sin and love your husband and your wife. And it's not this happy feeling of love that I see in the junior high. That's not love. Look on. Look on what he says. The wife by covenant... In verse 15, but did he not make them one? Did he not? Having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. 
for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He made them one. The world doesn't own, the world does not know this. And many professing Christians do not know this. But let, let's recap here. Let's recap what we got so far. God created man and woman for the purpose of companionship and created the institution of marriage for them to enjoy. Which, by the way, he created you for companionship to her. Or you for companionship to him. It's not so that you can get companionship. So your duty in that, as far as that is concerned, is to provide the companionship for your spouse. It's not so that you can get companionship. All you can do is handle you, right? Well, but she's not, she's not, she's not giving me what I need. Mm. So? Well, he, but he's not, he's not treating me the way that he should. So? What are you to do? You're, you're to provide the, you are to be the helper to your spouse, regardless of what they're doing. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. Then, he, the God of the universe, the one who controls it all, joins them together in marriage. John Piper said it this way, When a couple speaks their vows and consummates their vows with sexual union, it is not man or woman or pastor or parent who is the main actor. God is. God is the one that is controlling that. God is the one that is joining that union. But there is more. There's more. There's more depth. We want to go in deeper. We want to understand more about this amazing institution so that the world will see it in us. And it was after, of course, that Jesus completes the gospel. He fulfills the covenant that was made with Abraham. And this further revelation of marriage was given. Turn to Ephesians. Chapter 5. And here we see Paul quote Genesis. Is Genesis important? We've seen Jesus quote it. We've seen Paul quote it. It's the foundation of our faith. Yes, it's important. Verse 31, chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then we see this in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So here's the great mystery. Here's the depth that we're lacking in our marriages. Here's the depth that we're lacking in our, in our churches. And that is that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. To better understand this, um, I want to kind of explain how weddings worked in the time of Christ. Some of you may have heard this. Some of you may not. But uh, marriages were different then than they are now. And personally, I think we should go back to doing it this way, but most people are against me on that. So, 
But this is how it kind of went. The man would find a suitable bride. He would find somebody who he would want to marry. Sometimes this was his choice. Sometimes it was arranged by his father and by her father. But whatever the reason, he would approach her. Now, the men did want to get married because in that time, the punishment of fornication was death. So people were a little better at remaining celibate until marriage. Um, So men wanted to get married. Women wanted to get married. There was a desire for, for this to happen. So what would happen is he would, he would find this woman and he would approach her with a bridal contract. I know this doesn't sound that romantic to you, but um, the marriages lasted, so maybe it was better. I don't know. But it was a legal agreement, um, and he would give the terms by which he would propose marriage. And this, a big part of this was always a bridal price. He would offer some sort of price for the bride. And the reason for this is, is kind of twofold. One was this showed um, the seriousness of the young man to pursue a, to pursue a, husband, or a bride, right, to pursue a wife. He's, he's willing to put down cash saying... I care for her. I will care for her. Here's how much. Right? And the other thing was, it's actually a tribute to the father of the bride for raising a girl to be good marriage material. Especially in the agricultural communities, which was most of the world at that time, um, raising daughters was considered somewhat of a liability. And not, and the reason is because they weren't able to work the fields like the sons were. So you had sons, if a, if a man had four or five sons and they could go out and work the field and he had free labor for however long, right? With daughters, they, they did work. There's no doubt about that. And they did contribute to the home. But for the father, it, he didn't get as much out of them. So how did they make up for this? With a dowry, with a bride price. Um, and so if the bride and her father agreed to the terms, the bride and the groom would drink drink a cup of wine together to seal the deal. And then the groom would pay the price. And the price would depend on who it was, right? What the groom could afford and what the what the position of the bride. So it wasn't a normal thing for just a lowly plowboy to go marry the daughter of a, you know, very high-ranking anybody a king or anything like that, right? So it was kind of agreed on in the, on the price. But he would pay the price, and then he would depart. And the purpose of paying the price was a, were, there were a couple of things. One, it was to guarantee that he would return. It was to guarantee that I've paid this money, and it was a substantial amount depending on your, I mean, Whatever your situation was, it was enough to where you're not just throwing it around, right? And so he paid the price, and then that was a guarantee that he would return for her because he's paid for her. And it would guarantee her, she would, she would remain faithful and faithful to him and to his return. And so where did he go? He, he left, and it was many times close to a year, he would go back to his father's house, 
and prepare a bridal chamber. And hopefully you start to see some parallels here. Paid a price. I go to prepare a place for you. So he would go and prepare a bridal chamber. And a lot of times it was either a room within the father's house or he might build a completely separate little building and he would spend the time decorating it, making it extremely nice, as nice as they could, and then they would have to stock it with provisions for seven days because they're going to spend seven days in this bridal chamber um, for the marriage ceremony. And it, it was very important, and I think this is where we're lacking a lot in our culture is the emphasis that the children, that the young people put on the wisdom of their parents. He would prepare this bridal chamber until his father said, okay, it's good enough. Now, why would he do that? You guys ever met 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old guys? It's good enough. I'm going to get her. Uh, there's no roof. It's all right. Right? I mean, that's how we are. And so the father in time has become more patient and has gained wisdom. And he says, no, you get back over there and you get it done right. And the bride's the same. She might be with any cute guy that comes along and got a couple of dollars. That's good enough. I'm ready to go. No, her father has developed patience and wisdom and can tell you can it's not just about the money and the on the bride price it's will this young man take care of my daughter will they raise godly seed and so this wisdom of the parents was a very important part of this and so he would prepare the place and then the bride and the, um so then the 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 tradition was that the the bride, while the groom was preparing the place, she would prepare herself for marriage. She would have whatever um, the dress, I can't remember what the dress was called, but uh, a certain cere- ceremonial type garb that they wore, and she would wear a veil. So when she went out on the streets, she had a veil on showing everybody else around her that she was spoken for, that she had been bought with a price, and so no young men would approach her. This, because the marriage was, it was at that point, even though the marriage hadn't been consummated yet, they were betrothed, which meant they were married at that point. Um, it was a two-step process, unlike what we have today. We have one marriage. but So she would walk around with this veil on, letting everybody know, no, I'm spoken for. And she would also assemble her bridal party. And I think, I, I mean, I don't... I would, I would have loved to have seen one of these marriage ceremonies because I think they were quite the deal. I think it was one of the most, I mean, when somebody got married, it's exciting now, isn't it? I mean, especially for young ladies, they just, you can see them at weddings and they're just bubbly and giggly and they're having a blast and they just like it and everybody's all, oh, you're, I think it was that magnified a lot. And the reason is they didn't have a lot of entertainment in this culture, Right. We don't understand this. We have a little bit of entertainment. We are saturated. We worship entertainment. But they didn't have a lot. So when something like this was happening, it was a big deal. And so she would assemble her bridal party, and that was a big thing. And then what would happen is the groom 
and some of his his bridal party, some of his groomsmen, if you will, would it, they would always kind of sneak in, and a lot of times it was at night, um, but she never knew exactly when he was coming, so she had to be ready at all the time, and then he would sneak in and like steal her away. This seems kind of crazy, but actually, if you really start thinking about the excitement of that, it would have been thrilling, right? I mean, it would have been awesome. The, the, the young ladies sitting around, just maybe today's the day, and she'd look, she'd watch, right? And that's where you, when you see the, um, the, the story about the virgins and, the, and their lamps, and some of them didn't have their lamps ready, and they got left behind. Well, that's what was happening. They just missed the party of the year, right? Um, they weren't ready. They weren't ready for the groom to come. So he would come and he would steal her away in the middle of the night when she wasn't ready. And he would take her back and her, them and the bridal party would follow. And they would go into the bridal chamber, close the door. Everybody would be waiting outside for seven days, partying it up, you know, having a feast, whatever was going on, and for the marriage to be consummated. And then when they came out, it was fulfilled, and everybody would celebrate, and, and that, that was the Jewish wedding. And, that, and so the marriage was complete. And so what we see here with Paul, we see this mystery revealed. We see what's going to happen with Christ and his bride. This picture is Christ and his church that we see in the Jewish wedding. For whatever reason, Jesus Christ set his affection on his bride and he came with a contract and a bride price. And there was no amount of land and there was no amount of silver or gold in the universe that could have paid it. We were so distraught. We were so downcast. In that scenario with the, with the Jewish wedding, can you imagine just some poor, and, and this would, you know, these, these kind of stories we love, some poor downcast girl and the king's son comes and ransoms half his kingdom for her. We would be like, that is so amazing. Well, take that, multiply it times however number you can, and it still doesn't touch what has happened. The most unworthy of brides and the most worthy of kings. And he comes, he sets his affection on her, and he comes and he gives the bride price. It is the highest bride price that has ever been offered or ever will be offered. This affection that we speak, the mystery of his love that we sing about, is at a level that we cannot understand. What was the price? He gave his life. He willingly died in our place. This is the creator of heaven and earth, this is the creator of you and I, the one who gives us breath as we speak, he died. But more than that, he bore the wrath of God, the anguish, 
the despair, the crushing weight of true justice bearing down on him on that cross. Why? Because you sinned. And because I sinned. And it was the only price that could be paid to redeem this bride. It was the only price that could be paid that could guarantee his return for her. And so now we are a bride waiting for his return. And as we go out into the world, we need a veil on our face. And I don't mean physically, but we need to live in this world showing all these other institutions that we belong to Christ and we are not available All you other suitors, and there's many, and they're trying to even steal the institution of marriage as we speak. All of you, you can turn away because we're bought with a price. His bride is bought with a price. This is the institution that he has given us in marriage. We, in our marriages, are a picture of him and his church. And so, young people, as you enter into marriage, as you are considering marriage, you enter into it with great reverence. Why? Because with this person whom you are marrying, you will spend the rest of your life as a picture of Christ and the church. And if you are already married, that's why you continue in it With great reverence. Why? Because you're a picture of Christ and the church. And if you let your marriage fail, then you are openly disregarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we say, till death do us part, we're entering that same kind of covenant that God entered with Abraham, which he passed through by himself when he could swear by no other, he swore, by no higher, he swore by himself. And you're entering the covenant that because Abraham broke it, Christ died. Because we broke it, Christ died. That's what kind of covenant marriage is. And we're going to enter into it thinking, yeah, if, it's, yeah, if I'm not happy, I'm going to get out. Praise God that Christ didn't enter into it with that attitude. So when we divorce, we're, mis- we're misrepresenting the covenant that Christ has with his bride. Now, there are just... Know this, there are extreme situations, there are extreme circumstances because of depravity, and that's why that's why Jesus said, apart from uh, fornication, apart from infidelity, there are parameters given that need to be considered. But when we look at most of the reasons... Compared to this, they're frivolous. Christ will never leave his bride. He will never leave her. And if you belong to him, you're part of that, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And um, as we consider marriage, 
consider this. Your happiness will not be found in your marriage. It shouldn't be. Your fulfillment should not be found in your spouse. And it won't be. Your fulfillment, your happiness, your joy is found in the Messiah. Your spouse is not your Messiah. Your spouse is not your Savior. Your future spouse, the one that you imagine if you, if you have that thought, like, oh, I can't wait. If I, if I just found this person, I'd be happy. No, you won't. Your happiness, your fulfillment is in Christ. Your spouse and your relationship with that spouse is a direct testimony and reflection of that. Let's pray. Father, God, what a just thank you for reminding me of this glorious gospel. God, thank you for giving us a mystery that we can't understand. We will never understand how you being so holy could love us so filthy. But God, I praise you that you haven't left us in that filth. You've pulled us out of it. You've made us clean. You've given us these wedding garments and you've given us a veil. And I pray, God, that we would wear it proudly and that we would look for the return of the bridegroom anxiously. Lord, I pray that that thought, that those thoughts would reflect in our marriages. And I know, God, that each of us, I know that I have work to do in my marriage so that it would be a better reflection of you, so it would be a better reflection of you and the, and the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And I know that there's others that have work to do, but praise God, praise you, thank you, Lord, today that you are giving us this, that you've given us this word and that we can go from here and we can do this work. And I pray for marriages, the institution of marriage all over the country. I pray for churches all over this city and all over this country, God, that they would, that they would seek to do the same and that we could glorify you. And I pray, Lord, that you would always have us in our mind to watch and to anxiously await the return of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.